0: We've got a guest speaker here today, Rick Rotz is with us, isn't that great? Rick uh, recently, he and his wife recently returned from a short stint in Australia, Um, they, he and Katie now live in Langley, BC, they have two adult children. Uh, Rick's specialty is in scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, with an emphasis on the gospels, on Jesus. And how those two testaments relate to one another. Very relevant stuff. He also has interests in ancient history, the history of ideas, and particularly how the gospel has shaped our modern world. And in fact, today, the title of his talk is How the Gospel Changed the World. Really looking forward to this. Um, we're really excited. Rick has also agreed at some point in an undetermined future, sometime maybe in the next 12 months, he's going to come and do a series of lectures for us here at Hillside. Like, <laughs> great? So. You didn't ask his wife about this though, did you? You didn't mention that. All right, it's okay, it's okay, Rick. She looks like a long-suffering friend, so I think you're okay. <laughs> Lots of experience. Rick is currently a research professor at Regent College where he spent much of the last years uh, teaching and it's just a treasure in our community. And so uh, can we again give it up for, for him as he comes and leads us today?
1: That's about the limit of my expertise. Well, uh, thank you for the welcome. It's great. Um, Rick couldn't come, so I'm, I'm <laughs> filling in. <laughs> See, uh, uh, I can't do much for you, but I know someone who can, and he can give you eternal life as well, so we want to talk, talk about him if we can. So um, I believe you've worked wonders up the back, is that right? So if I do this, the rest of you just eyes closed, he's closed. When I do this, you can move to the next slide. Is that okay? Wanna try that? So. There we go. (laughs) High-tech. I was speaking down in the US recently in a huge auditorium, so this thing only works for about 100 feet or so. So he came up with this trick, right? I do that and technology. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, it's lovely to be here. Uh, I was chatting last week to a Christian youth worker who's heavily engaged in uh, schools around Vancouver, and he was just sharing how identifying as a Christian was making his work increasingly difficult, (laughs) partly because uh, at one school a number of the teachers had had bad experiences in churches, but largely because of issues around gender and, of course, the residential schools. And my guess would be, actually, that uh, many of us feel similar pressures and wondering if we might actually be on the wrong side of history. Have you heard that expression? Uh, maybe we might be wondering if the gospel has become an archaic irrelevance, I should say, and if being Christian is kind of pretty much a lost cause in our culture. Well, I want to encourage you in the short time we have this morning that the very opposite is in fact true. Far from being on the wrong side of history, I'm convinced that Jesus made a history possible. And not just our history, but wherever modernity is touched. So, in spite of what we might think, the gospel by and large, are you ready, has already won. It's won so comprehensively that we hardly even realise it. So I hope to talk about some of that today. Look at that, (laughs) the high tech stuff. (laughs) So some years ago, some colleagues and I were invited to speak to a group of Chinese academics at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, which you can see behind us in Beijing. Now, it's the elite pinnacle of the study of humanities in China. So we're invited to come and give a series of talks. And guess what our talks are on? Christianity and the gospel. Well, I was as surprised as anyone here. And I later chatted with one of the senior faculty and I said, look, I don't mean to be inappropriate about this, but I have to confess it's a little disconcerting to be giving lectures on these topics in this institution in this country. Well, in response, I got this mini-lecture right, uh, with some passion, okay? And she said, you know, China has to modernize, and I knew that. Um, I've been to numbers of the non-show cities, right? So there are cities that you get to see publicly. But there are lots of other places, and there are definitely numerous towns where things need to improve. So she continued. She said, well, around the 13th century, there were three possible cradles of modernity. First, there was China, and it's true. They had much longer keel lines on their ships than people in other countries did. They had rudimentary blast furnaces, printing, gunpowder, much larger cities. She said there's also the Islamic world. It had similarly massive cities, especially compared to Europe, and they had developments in mathematics, astronomy, and anatomy, though she failed to mention, of course, that much of this was due to knowledge transfer from Syrian Christian monks by the by. And then she said, and then there were you Europeans just coming out of running around half naked in blue paint. Well, (laughs) that's not quite the case. We'd already had something called the Carolingian Renaissance, but we'll let that just go by. And she said, nevertheless, within a few centuries, and in spite of two dreadful plagues, you'd uh, completely outstripped the rest of the world. Now, this is the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. It's the pinnacle of humanities in Beijing. And I'm being told this by one of their senior fellows. She said, We tried to understand why that was. At first, we thought it was some aspect of your technological development or maybe your social structures, etc. But in the end, we concluded that it was your religion. And that's why you're here lecturing in China. Can you imagine that happening at Simon Fraser or UBC? <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why China is in the ascendancy. Maybe we've forgotten the real dynamic roots of what transformed not just the West, but the rest of the world. Not much later, I gave an evening lecture in a place called Wuhan. I don't think you've heard of Wuhan, have you? Anybody? (laughs) Pre-COVID times. And uh, there was a PhD candidate who asked me a question, which question I can't recall, but I know I responded with my own. I said to him, "Uh, you've been learning about the biblical worldview all last week in your university. I was one of the lecturers. And you know the Ming Dynasty far better than I do so let me ask you a question which of these two do you think modern China most resembles and I'll never forget it he paused and then his face reflected this kind of staring realization and then he burst out modern China's fundamentally Christian yep (laughs) now if that shocks you uh, well today's a good day to become a Christian because if it's a shock, you don't really understand the gospel. Sorry, I'm playing with you, okay? Just, uh... <laughs> but we want to keep you awake, and these are one of these little coffee moments that help along the way, okay? So, ta-da! The point is, you can't really live in the modern world without a fundamentally Christian worldview, and that unquestionably includes Canada, in spite of how much we try to pretend otherwise. In other words, I'm going to suggest Jesus could never be more relevant to our culture okay now you're probably thinking oh my goodness uh what's this guy been drinking or something It's sunday so i haven't uh, <laughs> now as you can imagine there's a lot more we could say and as was mentioned we're hoping for uh, some follow-up times later on so this morning will be something of a taster now you'll need to put your thinking caps on right? i hope that's not an unusual experience in church <laughs> okay? uh, my hope would be that church would be the most transformative inspiring illuminating experience of your week okay? we hope that uh, the other thing i'd say is i have a good friend at regent college who says there's cookies on every shelf so get what you can and don't panic about what you don't we're talking about something that changed the world we're not going to get all of that in 30 minutes or so is that all right so if you're one of those control freaks again today's a good day to become a christian and let that go get what you can Right. <laughs> And we're going to be happy (laughs) nevertheless you might need to put some thinking caps on if there's some serious work to be done i'd like to cover three things then okay i want to talk first of all about what christianity is and what it is not that'll be crucial and then second we're going to spend most of our time overviewing some key areas in which the gospel challenged and actually overthrew antiquity and then finally and this very briefly We'll conclude with a brief proposal as to why in spite of our thoroughly Christian worldview the modern world is in such a mess I'll give you a hint Um, who's the most famous person in the New Testament it's going to be part of our answer to that third question okay got that those three things good off we go to begin what Christianity is not Tom Holland is a celebrated author of the ancient world remember when we used to be able to travel pre-COVID I did a bit of that and I often wandered through bookstores at airports and you'd often see Tom's books on display so he's a very popular but learned uh, writer on ancient antiquity and some years ago he wrote a piece for a left-leaning UK news and commentary magazine called The New Statesman. Anyone heard of The New Statesman? No? Okay. His piece was provocatively entitled Why I Was Wrong About Christianity. There's a longer story here but very briefly. As a young thinking lad, he was turned off Christianity by the shallow and anemic version he experienced at English public schools. I just want to say to you folks, a shallow and anemic Christianity is probably the thing that will most turn your young people off following Jesus. Okay? They're in a world where big questions are asked and shallow thinking and trivial answers, just they will not cut it and we'll lose them. In fact, in my experience, forgive me, but it's often we as churches that are the most significant factor in kids walking away from the Lord. <coughs> okay? So we just need to pay some attention to that, okay? Is that all right? Good. Yeah. Smiles all around, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so he devoted his life instead to the study of the colorful, exciting, and robust world of Greco-Roman antiquity. There's your Roman soldier, right? Uh, But the more... I'm sorry, it's behind you. I'm looking at that one, so I just have to remember to do this. If I do that, you can translate. I'm doing... Okay. The more he immersed himself in this world, the more alien he found it. And it wasn't just the endemic violence and callous cruelty. Now, we can hardly imagine what that's like today, but the ancient world was a horrible place in which to live. What shocked him more was the complete absence of any notion that the poor or weak might have any value whatsoever. No one in antiquity could have cared less about our residential schools issues. No one, no one would have cared about that. From their point of view, these people are useless. Who cares what happens to them? You understand the only reason we get excited about that is because we're so profoundly Christian. We've just forgotten that's who we are. right? now what he came to realize was that in, even in the so-called post-christian West our morals and our ethics are neither Greek nor Roman but thoroughly and for him proudly Christian a similar view was espoused on this side of the Atlantic by another professed non-christian the eminent sociologist Rodney Stark he concluded his study written as a non-christian on the rise of early Christianity by asserting that the early Christians gave to the ancient world for the first time its humanity. That's the great gift of the gospel. For the first time, we taught the world what it meant to be human. Now, I think the case for Western morality being largely Christian is pretty much irrefutable. And while not in any way wanting to diminish that hugely significant contribution I want to suggest that the gospel's transformative impact goes much further still All right, so we're great about talking about behavior and that really does matter we'll see why toward the end but Christianity is not just about being a nicer person okay the critical starting point is to realize that Christianity is not a religion now my parents would say that it's not a religion it's a relationship okay And that's true, but that's not my point. I'm talking about the first century, and no one in the first century would have thought that Christianity was religion when it first appeared, because no one ever thought they were practicing religion. Religion's a totally foreign notion in the first century. You've got to be careful about imposing these later ideas. So religion, as an optional adjunct to one's identity, is very much a modern conceit. And interestingly, largely because of the impact of Christianity itself. Uh, No one in the ancient world thought they were practicing a religion. They were simply being Roman, Greek, Egyptian, Jewish, eating their feta, etc. Appeasing the gods through their traditional safety mechanisms, and that's what ancient worship was, their safety mechanisms, so the gods don't get cranky with you was as much who they were as was their family, their ethnicity, their native tongue, and their culture. So just get rid of the religion category when you're thinking about the first century. It's historically inaccurate, and it's going to mess up our thinking. Now, it's vital to realise... There we go. Sorry, I need to put the sound effect in, sorry. That the early Christians were not persecuted because they worshipped Jesus. That might surprise you. The Emperor Augustus thought himself to be a great one. He wore platform shoes. Don't know if you knew that. So anyone who does that, has got a bit of an issue, I think. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so he set up these models of elitism, right, in the Roman Agora, some 70 great Roman men. And he then published this thing of things done res geste, and he exceeded them all, right? Well, if you look at the Emperor Augustus's classic model of what it meant to be you know, a virtuous Roman man, Jesus was a pathetic irrelevance. He didn't even compare to these guys. That's not what got Christians into trouble. We got into trouble for two main reasons. You can see them on the screen behind me. First of all, they stopped worshipping the ancestral gods. And in doing that, they refused to participate in those traditional safety rites, which everyone knew had to be performed at every public event if you're going to avoid the God's fickle wrath. So what are these Christians doing? They're putting their own cities at risk. That's from the point of view of most of their neighbors secondly as the emperor emperor galerius later on tells us the christians were hated because of their stubborn ignorance that's what god has killed in those early centuries why because we abandoned the traditional wisdom of our ancestors and presumed how dare they to invent their own laws and these are much more fundamental offenses And that's why they would call us haters of humanity. Ever heard that around lately? Christians are haters? Can I suggest we ought not be surprised if we too begin to meet the same unwavering hostility or if we are also labelled as irredeemable haters? And simply because we follow Jesus, not the current cultural norms our desires, our loves, our sexual passions, our personal identities, our angers are no longer our main motivations. In this regard, Christianity, to use Roe's lovely phrase, is better understood as a grammar of life. Why do we use this language? Well, grammar's a great word because while grammar is not story or poetry or communication, All of those things would be impossible without grammar. It provides the structure in which we can express who we are. So that's what Christianity is. It's not some sociological epiphenomenon that sits on the outskirts of existence, practice in private on a Sunday morning. It addresses the entire person, every community, all of life, and creation. I'm going to argue that the fundamental grammar of modernity, and I trained as an aeronautical engineer, there's a reason for the aircraft earlier on, is thoroughgoingly Christian. And it's precisely because of this that we've witnessed a tsunami of learning, creativity, and change that was inconceivable to the ancients. Now, when you think about church, do you think of a tsunami of learning, creativity, and change? probably not which is why i think we have a problem <laughs> okay well that's the first bit what is christianity it's a grammar of life so what is the grammar it gives us and this brings us to good our second point even if they hardly grasp the full scope of the gospel's profound challenge those maddened Thessalonians in act 17 at least intuited that something very serious was happening you can see it on the screen behind me those men who have turned the world upside down, have come here too. They were not best pleased. And why was that? Well, now we're going to use some big words, and I'm not speaking in tongues, even though I am a Pentecostal. The reason was the gospel undermined antiquity in a number of key areas. Cosmology. Da, 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 that's the nature of reality. Epistemology. This is why you pay a lot of money to go to uni, right? So you can pronounce four-syllable words. Doesn't mean you know any better, but at least you know the big words, right? Epistemology, how we know. Sociology and politics, the nature of society. Anthropology, what it means to be human. Virtue, ethics, how we should behave. And you'll notice that I've not mentioned anywhere Jesus, sin, judgment, heaven or hell, etc. And I think that might be a clue as to why so many of us, myself including, have missed this transformative power for so very long. Our grammar is really very narrow compared to the grammar of Scripture. And the more narrow we make that, the more irrelevant we become to the very world that the Gospel created. Isn't that interesting? We might be guilty of narrowing the Gospel's grammar. And that's what makes us irrelevant. <laughs> because we're actually hearing the gospel. we all woken up now, have we? The coffee is working, I hope. Yeah. Now, I do understand this is probably not the kind of language you're used to hearing on a Sunday, but I think it's essential. I, I want you to be convinced... Of the gospel's unparalleled impact and it's without parallel in all of human history now in particular here's what i'm going to be talking about uh, the gospel argued that genuine change is not only possible but also a gift that's kind of ironic the woke movement the anti-racism volvo apple right they all share the same assumption that the world could be different and that only comes from the gospel You've got to chuckle, that's just beautiful. <laughs> Knowing was about the senses and testing. Cities should be dynamic. All people are of equal value. The body is not the enemy, and love and compassion should be at the center. Okay? So let's go through these and we'll just make a few observations. Thank you so much. First of all, the gift of genuine change. Now, you understand for the ancient world, change was deeply problematic. At the time of the Exodus, The only good pharaoh was one in whose reign nothing happened. That was the beginning of the public service. (laughs) (laughs) Apologies. (laughs) Later on, the politically and geographically unstable world of the Greeks caused them to look elsewhere for something that didn't change, something stable. As they looked at the world, they saw two things on the one hand, there was the different reality of the apparently static and beautiful heavens. You can see that on the slide behind me. And hence the word cosmos, which means beautiful and ordered, from which we get cosmetics and which a good number of us are wearing today precisely to bring beauty and order to that which might be otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> now, this introduced an unbridgeable divide between the... Per- so, you're slightly catching up. That's good. That was pretty good. It's only five seconds. <laughs> Great. We shouldn't be having this much fun in church, should we? Oh, well. I was going to say, Jesus did turn water into wine, so you shouldn't be surprised. I'm really skating on thin ice. (laughs) And it's summer. (laughs) Very risky. So what this way of thinking did was introduce this unbridgeable divide between the perfect heavens and the messy, broken earth. And it wasn't until the Christian West rejected this dualistic assumption that modern astronomy as we know it, could be born. But on the other hand, this is probably more our concern this morning, there was the world of ideas, of geometry and of philosophy. And here the Greeks held two basic convictions. They're going to be a little bit heavy here, but you'll be right. The first was that the human mind could only grasp that which doesn't change. That might sound complicated, but it's not. For example, language only works if the meaning of chair has something stable and unchanging about it. Right? So, that's what they meant. And it's the same with numbers. The second idea flowed from this. The true could not change. One plus one must always equal two. Yep, we can grant that. Then they went on to say that only the true was real. Now, that was the big move. Everything that changed was merely misleading appearances. Enter cosmetics. You can immediately see the problem, can't you? Everything around us changes. Looked in the mirror lately? (laughs) (laughs) Now, how did they resolve that tension? Well, they claimed that what appeared to be change was merely rotation. As a famous Stoic once declared... There could never be anything new. Everything was repeated down to the very last detail. So according to these guys, the truth is, you've heard this talk untold millions of times before and will again. You're allowed to show your pleasure. (laughs) That's the world in which they lived. You see, from this perspective, the internal, impersonal and mathematical logos determined everything. You've heard that word before as a Christian? Where does that occur? Gospel of John... And what does John talk about? Mathematics? Philosophy? Theological structures? Who does John talk about? Jesus, right? That's a radical attack on the Greek notion of logos. We might not realise that. So in that world, if you happen to be backing your chariot out of your driveway and you ran over the top of your favourite two-year-old granddaughter, you had to accept it. Stiff upper lip and all that. Why? Because even that was part of the great providential order. Genuine change was not merely impossible. It was illogical, irrational and inconceivable. In the end, a perfect cosmos became a prison where human agency and significance were marginal at best. This helps explain why Christianity earned the dismissive ire of the educated elites. If something was new, it must necessarily be wrong. Now, of course, people invented things. That's what people do. But because those inventions are part of the changing material world, if it changes, it can't be true or real, they never really gave it much attention. The modern world's explosion in technology is very much a Christian phenomenon. So, uh, no more smart remarks about technology, okay? (laughs) You might have to answer to Jesus for that. (laughs) Now, why was this? Because for the early Christians, creation taught that Genesis was good. Now, notice that, deliberately not perfect. Creation's good. In a perfect world, nothing can change. The moment it does, it's no longer perfect. But in a good world, There's all kinds of space for growth, discovery, creativity and a better future. So if you're couching your theology in terms of the perfect, you're actually siding with the Greeks and not with Jesus and that might say some things about why our churches cannot deal with change, let alone our agents of change. Hmm. In fact, one of the first things Genesis relates is human creativity, even among humans who rebel. Now, I've been around theological education for a very long time and I can't tell you how often this is regularly missed by many Christian theologians. Perhaps because, unsurprisingly, many of them are primarily concerned with abstract, otherworldly realities. Hmm. Paul, it seems, was the first person in the Greco-Roman world to speak of transformation in the sense of genuine, positive change. Romans 12.2. You see, all of our modern, taken-for-granted talk about innovation, designing for change, is really only possible because of the gospel. In one sense, you really can thank Jesus for your smartphone. (laughs) To our second point. This naturally has consequences for how we know. In the only the unchanging perfect is real world of the Greeks, truth is fundamentally a matter of mathematically precise thinking about abstract ideas. Welcome to philosophy and its Platonic child, theology. Yeah, actually theology is not a Christian word, it was developed by Plato. Aristotle might observe the material world but only to come up with a rational explanation. So for example, in order to explain the origin of movement in a perfect cosmos, it was rational that heavier objects must fall faster than light ones. Now, apart from the fact that I care about my phone, I can demonstrate right now why he was wrong. Now, he's an extremely clever guy, this is Aristotle, and it made perfect sense, and for that reason, he never tested it. Fundamental error. You do understand, being reasonable doesn't make something true. And we get caught up in that all the time. We have a conversation. That sounds reasonable. It must be true. No. Where's your evidence? What's your argument like? John Philoponus, a Christian philosopher, in the 6th century, did what I was afraid to do and dropped two things and said, see, Aristotle, you're wrong. That's a 1,000 years before Galileo, who apparently pinched his work and didn't tell anyone. Galileo's an interesting kind of guy. The point here is that reality does not conform to what we think it is in our heads. You've got to pay attention to the world outside of us. We have to let reality be what reality is. We observe it and then we get some ideas about it but we're always testing those ideas against the world that's actually there. So just in terms of church life, don't go picking up some model from Chicago about how to grow your church because this ain't Chicago. You're in a unique setting. Nowhere else is like this this place here. Nowhere else, right? You have to pay attention to this area. This is where God's put you. Can you see how that works? If you go down that Greek model, you just pick up these generic models and plunk them on top of everyone, right? So we all start introducing, good morning, church. Who told you to say that? (laughs) And I still like the songs I sing. This is a great contribution. You have to pay attention to what's actually in front of you, what's going on in Coquitlam, right? Not what's going on south of the border in Bellingham or something, okay? As nice as that might be for the Bellinghamites, but that's not you. I think it's why when you come to the, uh, the book of Exodus, look at all that language about seeing and hearing. None of it's about theological speculation. None of it's about thinking, oh, what do I think God should look like? Don't do that. Pay attention. That's why the Gospels are not philosophy or theological speculation. They're ancient Greek biographies. They're talking about what was seen and heard and tested. You got that? That's profound. Now, these radically different ways of thinking impacts two very different visions of society, or impact two very different visions of society. Aristotle, you might have heard of him again, is famously reputed to have defined man as a political animal. Heard that? Man is a political animal? Okay. Um, It's famous but the uh, translation is apparently terrible. What he meant was humans are animals of the polis, humans are animals of the city. For Plato before him it was logical then that the ideal city should mirror the ideal cosmos. So his republic likewise envisaged a rigid hierarchical structure with elite males at the head, that would be me, right? Well, at least that's what my university would tell me, right? why we pay them so much money. And then it would descend through the lesser ranks of women who are actually just deformed males, sorry about that, uh, artisans, slaves, non-Greeks and barbarians, which would include most of Asia, sorry. If you're finding that offensive, um, that's because you are so not Greek, actually. Uh, Now, of course, you know, they lived in a world that was changeful and their elite families sometimes became impoverished and the lower-born very occasionally did well, even though those were never allowed to forget the stigmata of their lowly origins. Even so, anchored in this conception of a static and perfect cosmos, we're not surprised that Hellenistic society and culture essentially goes nowhere. If the true and the real is expressed only in the single perfect ideal form, where is the imperative to innovate? Where the urge to experiment or to try new ideas? I've done a bit of art history. In spite of the perfections of classical Hellenistic art, in one sense, to have seen one statue is to have seen them all. Just go to the Louvre in Paris, right, and watch the amazing change that happens, the explosion of different art in Europe. And I've been to the Shanghai Cultural Museum, similar situations. It's not about race. It's not ethnicity. It's to do with what worldview, what grammar of life that we're living in. Okay? So that was their view of the city. In contrast, the gospel's grammar picked up that Hellenic body metaphor right, and said, actually, the head is no longer made up of elite males who can trace their genealogies back scores of generations. No, 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 no. There was only one head, a self-sacrificing and foot-washing servant, Christ. And after this, everything is gift. We cannot, on the basis of status, race or sex, know in advance someone's gifts or what contributions they can make to society. That's merely prejudice. Like the cosmos, we have to pay attention to see what's in front of us, to each individual, regardless of their origins. Furthermore, if everything is gift, where's boasting? Not only is society dynamic but everyone is ultimately of equal value. Thus Paul writes some of the most radical words in the Hellenistic world. In Christ there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. What's he saying to us? You cannot judge people on that basis everyone has to be taken individually that's the great gift of the gospel we do that the I cannot say to the hand I have no need of you so the university I come from or at in England is falling over itself trying to open its doors to people from less advantaged backgrounds no one would do that in antiquity no one that'd be crazy why would you do that So the I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And why? Because in the gospel's grammar of life, everybody is made in God's image. Christ died for all and all in him can be indwelt by the one and the same spirit. Uh, People who've worked in church history will tell you that the Pentecostal century, the 20th century, is one of the most powerful drivers toward democracy that the West has ever seen. Because in those settings, you didn't need a PhD to have a word of prophecy. You could be someone who picked up the garbage and the Holy Spirit still come upon you and you offer a powerful word to God's people. Now, you have any idea how powerful that is? My dad was a factory worker. He knows what it's like to be on the shop floor and to be looked down on the bosses, by the bosses. But he'd come to church on a Sunday morning and God would reveal the secrets of someone's heart to him and heal them through him. You want to talk about what makes people come alive and gives them a great sense of dignity? Right? You have to allow room for the Holy Spirit to do that, folks. Okay? brings us to our fourth consideration. I am watching the clock. Okay. What did it mean to be human? In ancient Greek folk folk culture, the word for body, soma, sounded very much like the word for tomb, seima, soma, seima. Soma, 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 seima, seima, soma. Well, this helped launch... Uh, there, I should get a new career, shall I? <laughs> Help launch the remarkably long-lived battle between the pure eternal soul and its tomb-like body, which eventually falls into decay and corruption. Just a word here, be careful about talk of saving souls. If you're not careful about that, you'll think the only thing that matters is that kind of inner thing and you won't pay attention to the body, and that surely ain't Christian. Hmm. So consequently, in the first century, bodies were either abused or indulged, both of which excesses Paul had to confront in Colossians and then Corinthians. But for Christians, to be made in God's image meant that one could not be human without a three-dimensional in-the-round physical body. That's why both Yahweh and Jesus healed them. And all bodies, not just the elites. And this restoration is what Christians anticipated in the resurrection, which it has to be embodied because bodies matter. Paul's implication that people who sleep around do not know God does not come because he's a bigoted first century Jew who could not cope with more tolerant Roman practices. You understand the Roman, just how laughable that statement is. He's simply reflecting the Scripture's unimaginably high view of the body. And it's not just my body or elite male bodies. For the philosophers, it was irrational for people to bother with the weak, the poor, the sick, and the disabled. You should instead focus on the good and beautiful and true. Look around you. How many good and beautiful and true are there this morning here, right? Early Christians, everybody's body mattered, including the slave girl whose master could no longer use her as he wished. The seven-year-old boy sold as a sexual plaything for exorbitant prices on the slave markets and the disabled person who was compelled to dance for the general merriment of wealthy guests, the gospel alone gave the Western world and modernity the notion of universal human rights, grounded in the conviction that every human being was made in God's image. This brings us, finally, thank you for your patience, to a new way of life. In the Homeric world, remember Brad Pitt in Troy? (laughs) Remember that? He's getting older. (laughs) I am so pathetic. (laughs) Virtue and excellence meant elite, buffed up warriors, courageous in battle and persuasively well-spoken. And the result? Terrible conflict, cycles of revenge, and a brutal carelessness of the lives of the masses. By the New Testament, times, this had mutated into elitism of status, education, and opulent wealth. That wouldn't be Vancouver by any chance, would it? But regularly devoted or devolving into equally vicious and vengeful competition. Aristotle, there he is again, proposed a nothing to excess ethics in order to ameliorate this turbulent instability, but he was equally indifferent to the unkempt and uneducated masses. Essentially, it was an attempt to maintain the status quo. So his idea of justice meant keeping the elites where they belonged. (laughs) Compassion for them was not just weak. So, yes, marginally acceptable in females, who I said were a kind of deformed male. Uh, It was potentially immoral because it transgressed justice. Christians, however, we worshipped at the feet of a crucified God. We are about neither virtue. Courage is not a Christian idea. We are strong not in ourselves but in the Lord, nor ethics. There was nothing of Aristotle's untroubled, aloof and self-composed golden mean in the cross. Instead, the gospel emphasised trust, hope and care, which are neither self-focused nor of our own effort, but directed toward others and through God's Spirit. Christians were generous and compassionate because that is what unique Yahweh, a God unlike any other, is like. Those folks who proudly boast of their sole reliance on reason would do well to remember that it was Hellenic reason that produced the endemic violence, injustice, devaluation of the masses, including women, slaves, the poor, the weak and the disabled, and the hopelessness of the changeless ancient world. This brings us to our final question here. Having briefly surveyed all of this, and by the way, I'm not taking everything in antiquity, there are some things that are impressive still, but in terms of these things, consider now the modern world. What does it emphasise? Innovation and change. Genuine knowledge comes house through the senses and testing. Cities are what? Dynamic. All people, supposedly, are said to be of equal value regardless of their race, their sex or social status, where the body is not the enemy. And compassion and love for others are really the hallmarks of genuine humanity. So which does the modern world most closely resemble? Hellenistic antiquity or the gospel? Here we go. Next slide, please. You got that? I hope you see that, folks. The gospel has already won. It's shaped the world. The guy in China knows that. So our time's gone, so let me just finish by saying two things about this. The gospel has launched the most extraordinary revolution in the history of humanity, and we have no idea where it will end. To take a line from the first Blade Runner, starships on the shores of Sagittarius. This is what it's unleashed. You think that took Jesus by surprise? I don't think so. What if the vision of the gospel is an extraordinary world that's even beyond our imagination? Where all kinds of people get to contribute are treated well. It's absolutely staggering. So why then, last slide, is the modern world in such a mess? There we go. Sorry. I'll keep going. I had to click there, but it didn't come through. Keep going. Next one. It's good. We're finished, are we? Okay, we don't have anyone. Okay, that's fine. We'll finish with this one. Oh, yep, sorry, Uh, keep going. Uh, Now, why are we in such a mess? That's me actually doing my street performance. Uh, (laughs) Well, I think the answer is quite simple, right? And this is really our last line or two. Um, I think the reason we're in a mess is because we have plundered the gospel for all its freedoms and we love it, right? The problem is freedom requires character. I have an interest in design thinking and designers will tell us that every design choice reflects our character. It's scary, but a designer can walk into your home and read what, you've, what you value off that home, whether you value people or whether you value property. They can do that in the church. We can say all we want, but when they walk into a church, they can read off our structures what really matters to us. Right? Because character informs our every design choice. And I think this is the problem. Sorry that Jesus hasn't come through there. But we want all the freedoms Jesus has given us, but we refuse to admit that the only way those freedoms will not destroy us is by imitating him. That's what we're doing. We're calling people to imitate the character of the one who gave us these freedoms because without that character, we could well destroy ourselves. So, grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening. Um, I hope you found this encouraging, get what you can, maybe there'll be some more time later. But when you sing this morning about Jesus, it's okay just to lift your voice and raise the rafters, because he has made the world a very different place. Behold, as a famous Australian director, once concluded, maybe a more infamous movie, I have made all things new. He wasn't kidding. Grace and peace. (laughs)